0: This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to the podcast. If you are coming back, if this is your first time, welcome. You can find all the podcast episodes with some notes, some links at IsaacMorehouse.com you can email questions, comments to isaacmorehouse at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. Isaac Morehouse does the trick in all places. Um, you can also check out my company, Praxis, at discoverpraxis.com. Uh, for those of you, several people who have listened to the podcast have asked a little bit more about it and I've referenced it sometimes, um, but I haven't actually sort of promoted it and and given the um, the website address and things like that. So discoverpraxis.com. If you are looking to um, get into an awesome career right now, regardless of your educational status with or without college um, and have an amazing 10 month educational and career program, that's what it's all about. Okay. Today is another episode of ask Isaac. I don't even like that name. I feel it's kind of cheesy, but I can't think of anything better. So (laughs) that's what we're going with for right now. Um, And again, as I've said several times, this is kind of an experiment and um, I'm having fun with it. I'm getting some questions that I think are interesting. So um, I'm doing another episode today and we will see where it goes. Today is going to be another sort of grab bag, rapid fire session of several questions instead of going more in depth into a single question. So these questions all came again through Facebook, um, some of them anonymously, some of them with uh, individual names attached. So here we go. Donna Matthias asks... What if one of your children became a radical socialist atheist who disdained clever wordplay? Donna, I was okay. I was okay with those until the last part. Disdained clever wordplay. If my children disdain, not only don't appreciate my brilliant punnery, but disdain it. That will hurt me on a level I don't know if I can deal with. Um, But in all seriousness, you know, what if your kids adopt beliefs that are radically different than your own? Um, This is something I've thought about a lot before having kids, having kids, and I have genuinely tried really hard to put myself in a position where that wouldn't matter to me, where that wouldn't crush me, where that wouldn't. Where that wouldn't, I don't need them to believe anything in order for me to be happy. And I think as weird as that sounds with your own kids, some people might even think that's, that's criminal. Um, I think as long as my happiness is contingent on anyone else, including family, including my children, believing certain truth statements, certain propositions about the world, I'm never going to be a happy person. And I'm going to be probably a jerk to people and probably not going to increase their odds of respecting the beliefs that I have or taking them seriously. So I've tried really hard to continually put myself in a position where I ask myself that I'm open to that and I don't attempt to proselytize my kids in any way on any of my beliefs, Um, but uh, just let them see and let them be exposed and let them discover truth. People who are truth seekers are far more interesting and fascinating than people who happen to use the same labels as I do or use the same words or claim the same beliefs Uh, because that doesn't always mean that they really engage them. Um, So hopefully it would all be fine unless they hate puns, in which case I will disown them and disinherit them entirely. Eric Alston asks, what is the balance between creation and reaction in social change? Is social change more wrought by the agency of social movements or are such movements more responsive to exogenous shocks or resisting or existing structural failures? That is a really good question. Uh, an age old question for social scientists, historians, et cetera. Um, I don't think I'm going to give anybody any sort of, you know, aha, Isaac has solved the problem. I will say this though. I think all social change ultimately is brought about by a change in beliefs. What people believe is the ultimate binding constraint and the ultimate, I don't want to say determinant of the world they live in, because it's not so much what people want that they get, it's what they're willing to put up with. So people have certain beliefs about what's right and what's wrong, and they're willing to tolerate a world that deviates from those to a certain extent, but not too far. So what they're willing to tolerate is the ultimate binding constraint. Anything that's within that window of what the majority of people are willing to tolerate um, is a possible world that they may live in. And there are all kinds of various, uh, you know, sort of reasons that might come and go that have more specific individual um, explanations for what sort of mix of options within that window of possibility they live under. So it's ultimately beliefs, but how are beliefs formed? That's where it gets even more tricky. I think beliefs are formed in two ways. They're formed through ideas directly, through argumentation convincing people, uh, intellectually of things, convincing them that slavery is wrong or that alcohol prohibition is, uh, immoral or just a bad idea. Um, convincing people that, you know, uh, purchase of indulgences doesn't get you into heaven. Winning those arguments changes people's beliefs, but I would argue a very small percentage, a minority, the intellectuals, the ones with a disproportionate influence of society are the ones who, often come to their beliefs through ideas directly, through direct engagement with the ideas. But the majority of people's beliefs are shaped more by experiences, by what's in the air around them and what they're born into. So whether you call those experiences exogenous shocks or uh, existing structural failures, or whether you call them the result of earlier movements of ideas, um, that's a really tough one. But for example, I don't think anyone born today is on average more or less moral or immoral than someone born 200 years ago however i I think that's pretty clear like i don't think they're more uh intelligent iq wise physically um necessarily any more gifted or stronger maybe slightly depending upon nutrition and things but and nor do i think they're more moral just better people however 200 years ago an average person was very likely to support or at least tolerate the institution of slavery Today, the average person is very unlikely to support or tolerate it. And it's because just like in the physical realm, someone born today can move a thousand cubic yards of dirt in no time, and they're no physically stronger than someone born 200 years ago who would take weeks or days to do that. Because the technology has advanced, the accumulation of capital and technology has improved so that Someone born today has access to a different set of, uh, you know, sort of capital goods and resources. I think the same can be said for kind of moral technology or institutional technology. As beliefs and changes change, and beliefs and and, and institutions change and improve, someone born today has access to this whole new moral technology. They're born in a world without slavery, and they're very unlikely. To go in and support slavery, not because they're inherently better, but because the the apparatus available to them is different. They can see what a world is like without slavery. They can see back into the past and all these ideas and arguments that have been built up. It's like the accumulation of physical capital um, sort of they get to access those where other people before them didn't. So Um, Does that mean that social change is created deliberately by movements trying to create it or the movements are a response to other changes? I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both, Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's belief that's the determining factor and social movements that aim to change people's belief through the direct, you know, dissemination of ideas can impact if they're effective, a small percentage of disproportionately influential people whose influence will sort of seep down over time, uh, much more slowly and people who can change experiences or experiences just changing exogenously. I mean, the earth getting cooler during the little ice age, um, that was no one's doing, um, had, institutional ramifications, um, for example, or technological changes, entrepreneurs inventing the cell phone, make people's beliefs about, you know, tele long distance telephone monopoly regulations, um, completely different because they change the entire game, change people's beliefs by changing experiences. So, um, and, and social movements can respond to that. They can seize on that window. They can say, okay, now it's possible to argue things we never could before. Um, so I guess that's a (laughs) non-answer to say it's both. I don't know what the balance is, but I think you can, you have examples of social change occurring, um, with both factors, uh, taking place. Okay. Nicole Lowe, uh, Nicole had a question on a previous episode. So Nicole, thank you for asking another question. How important is your physical health to your mental health? You know, I mean, to me personally, I think it's like really helpful to not think of them as separate at all to think of myself as a unified being. Now, sometimes a paradigm of like, you know, body, mind, spirit or whatever, um, can be useful to apply as like a tool. But I think in general, thinking of myself as just one being um, and how am I doing right now? It's so connected and this dualistic sort of mind-body separation is so often the source of like confusion over my own state. I'll be wondering why I'm so exhausted or why my stomach has been so upset. And I won't feel mentally like I'm stressed at all. But then I'll go like give a big talk that I have you know been thinking about for a while or something like that and immediately feel physically great. And I'll realize I was stressed. I didn't recognize it as stress in the intellectual identifiable way, but my body recognized it as stress on some other level. Um, and so the more I can sort of see that it's all kind of one and the same in many ways, the more beneficial that's been to me. For me, it's not so much about Oh, you need to have physical health to have mental health. And like when we say physical health, people tend to think, okay, there's some objective standard of what is healthy and what is not healthy. Um, You know, I've got to run a certain amount or weigh a certain amount or whatever else to me, physical and mental health are so tied together. Good physical health is simply a physical body that you feel right and good about, right? Like you sort of know, and you gut, got like, I feel good. I'm getting things done. I have energy. I'm proud of the way that I can, can use my body and, and look and all these things like knowing that you have the physical conditions or, you know, we're always working towards it that are working well for you, I think is important. And that requires a lot of honesty. I think you have to sort of eschew the whole, like, don't feel bad about your body image. You're perfect. Um, don't change a thing, but you also have to eschew the whole, like, you know, you're dirt, you're nothing. Unless you're like a bodybuilder, you just have to find what works for you. For some people, it may truly be like, I'm not, I, I know people who genuinely don't feel good about their health. If they're not like lifting weights for an hour every day, I don't think that that's necessarily bad. That's their sort of preference set. And they're being honest about it. And I know others like myself, as long as I do like one form of exercise every day, even if it's 10 push push-ups. I feel pretty good about my health. <laughs> I feel, I do genuinely feel fine. Um, okay. Another question here, what is your view on learned helplessness? Um, and I'm assuming, uh, by this, we mean, you know, being helpless and of, of independence and taking care of yourself because not because that's naturally how humans are, but, it, but because you have learned that right when humans are born, they're fairly helpless. But I think it's much more rapid than we assume. I won't say fairly; they're totally helpless. A newborn baby cannot survive without without a, you know parents or someone caretakers. But it's fairly rapid, the the pace at which humans become independent. And I think as parents, in in our culture today at least, and this is not an argument that the past was better. I hate arguments like that. I think past was a lot worse in many ways, better in some ways. Who knows? It's complex. But I'm not I'm not arguing of some romanticized past, but Today, anyway, I think parents with time and resources, especially, we tend to over-parent and we tend to want to help our kids too much. I mean, some of it's just like selfish peace of mind reasons. Like when I'm in my house and my kids are fighting with each other and yelling and arguing and whatever, I want to just step in and like arbitrate and solve it, even though they didn't invite me to because not only am I like, oh, well, I'll teach them a good lesson about sharing or some nonsense, but also because... I'm just annoyed at the level of volume in the house. I want to, want, I want it to be settled. And so I think we step in over and over and solve the problem for our kids. Um, whether it's in, you know, the educational setting, uh, whether it's at, at home, um, and our kids learn when things get really complex, if I just sort of like complain and make known that it's hard, some authority figure will solve it. There's always an expert who knows more than me. There's always someone who has the answer if I don't have it. And I think that's completely false. Like I don't have the answer. Whatever advice I'm giving my kids to calm them down is like no more likely to be correct than whatever they would find out on their own. Um, in fact, probably less because I have less skin in the game. Right? So That mindset I think is very dangerous and that learned helplessness. I have to wait for instruction. I have to wait for the expert to solve it. Like one of the biggest revelations you can have in the world is not, oh my gosh, I'm great and I have potential to be great and do wonderful things. It's, oh my gosh, nobody knows what the heck they're doing. Like the competition isn't that strong because everybody's making it up. I remember the first time I met a really successful dentist, um, and he was like crazy. He was like day trading during the stock bubble in between appointments and all this stuff. He was a great dentist, but I realized this guy hasn't made a lot of money and built a successful practice because he's so much smarter and better than everyone else. He's just a dude who's making it up too. He's just a crazy guy trying to do his best. Like, like. So realizing that there are no experts, right? That's the great secret. There are people who know more and less, who have devoted their time more and less. They're all resources for you, but You got to figure it out. I think that's huge. And I think learned helplessness is crippling. I would go so far as to say this, this, this has nothing to do with emotional health, because I think emotional, um, people can be really emotionally damaged from having like really neglectful parents or whatever else. Uh, I'm I'm fully willing to admit that. But if you're talking about someone's ability to get things done, live independently, and let's say like be a good coworker, give me someone whose parents erred on the side of being too neglectful over someone whose parents erred on the side of being too nurturing any day of the week humans are tough they're smart they're adaptive they can figure stuff out and i think the thing that cripples us the most is having too much done for us not being left alone too much it's much harder for someone who's grown up having their every need met and never experienced the hardship responsibility of freedom and independence to adapt than someone who has been neglected and not been given a lot of resources and advice and guidance um they might have some issues certainly. And I'm not saying they're like, you know, go out and like neglect your kids or something. Um, but I think they're able to realize their human potential easier. Okay. Uh, two more questions here. Have you ever had to overcome apathy and unwillingness to act or a complete lack of motivation? How did you bounce back? Um, yeah, I mean, I absolutely have not that often. Like I'm a pretty naturally just sort of chipper, upbeat person. I'm fairly optimistic. I genuinely wake up. Like I hate, I feel physically like ill in the mornings when it's early. Uh, But once I'm up and out of bed, I'm almost always happy every day. Like I start the day, like looking forward to it, like something awesome is going to happen to me today. I'm going to create something awesome today. I just know it. I just have this feeling in my bones. Um, Part of that is learned, but part of that is also natural. So I don't run into apathy a lot, but I definitely do at times. For me, what I've found, if I feel apathy and unwillingness to act, lack of motivation, usually it comes when I've just been taking body shot after body shot. Like I'm just taking punches. I'm trying to build something, whether it's Praxis or some other project I'm working on or, you know, jobs I've had in the past, and I'm just not getting any wins. I'm not landing any punches. I'm just like, taking punch after punch after punch and i'm like oh my gosh i'm just tired i just want to shrug i want to crawl away in a cave and be left alone i'm tired of people questioning i'm tired of people not understanding i'm tired of being misunderstood i'm tired of people being offended i'm tired of having to explain myself i'm tired of having to fight and claw and scratch and try to convince people and to sell what i'm doing and blah blah and like i just feel like i'm ready to go run in a cave and hide And what I found to be the most effective for me, instead of adding to that guilt, guilt that I don't feel motivated, oh, I should feel motivated, I should go do stuff, I found to just run with it and say, you know what, I'm just going to like lay here motionless and do nothing. And the beautiful part about that, if I let myself do that guilt-free, 20 minutes, an hour max goes by and I like give myself permission to do that and then I immediately start to get antsy and I'm like, okay, I've got to do something. So that only doing nothing only sounds appealing when I, when I try not to let myself do it or make myself feel guilty about it. Once I say, yeah, that's fine. You know what? I'm just going to lay here motionless and do nothing. And then like, it doesn't take long before I start to get the motivation to act. Don't know why, but it works for me. Final question from Morgan Dunmire. What careers are going to be needed in the future? I think that's a question that the best answer is we have no idea. Not that we don't have an idea. There are some careers that we can say, okay, like at least in the, you know, two to five year realm, uh, any kind of programming language, people are hungry for people who can do that. Graphic design in huge demand. Um, you know, people with, uh, excellent writing, like copywriting skills, et cetera. I mean, there, there are things you can look at obviously like engineering, the physical sciences, anything in the oil and gas industry right now, you can say, yeah, there's demand for those, but In the future, what careers are going to be needed? A couple reasons I think a, I don't know, is the best answer. One, needed for whom, right? Like asking what does society need is I think a a misleading and dangerous question. There's a great quote. It's variously attributed, so I don't even know who, who actually said it. I've looked it up a few times and haven't been able to get to the bottom of it. But don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. For what the world needs is people who have come alive. And that might sound cheesy, but I actually think it's super powerful. And I really, really believe that. Um, So like, what does, what careers does the world need? Um, People who are just creating and doing stuff. I don't know what it will specifically look like. What do those individuals need? What do you need as an individual? And this is where I think the best answer is whatever you'll be doing in 20 years, 10 years, even probably doesn't exist yet. Most of the jobs that most of us have today didn't exist like 50 years ago, sometimes even 10 or 20 years ago. And you couldn't really define them to someone from that paradigm. So the jobs of the future probably don't exist yet. That means what's needed are people who are adaptive, opportunistic, entrepreneurial creative problem solvers who don't only have a specialized skill, but even if they do have a specialized skill, even if they're an engineer, they also have an entrepreneurial mind to understand the industry as a whole, to see opportunities and to adapt and move. Some of the most successful people I know studied one thing in school, started a career doing something totally different, and then launched a business doing something yet completely different again Um, maybe many times over Um, because it's their sort of entrepreneurial mindset, outlook, mental toughness, work ethic, emotional intelligence, uh, genuine hunger, curiosity, thirst for life, philosophical thinking ability. Those are the things that are needed more than any specific specialization. Okay. Well, thank you for the questions, everybody. Um, This one went on a little longer than I intended, but had some really great ones in there. And uh, happy to take more questions anytime. Again, isaacmorehouse.com. Isaac Morehouse at Facebook or uh Twitter. Um you can also uh LinkedIn. You can also look up um my company, Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Thanks for listening.